God has appointed that I should serve Him and serve you. Well, for about three years or so, I've been saying turning to John's Gospel. This morning, I'm calling you to turn to the book of Exodus, second book, Genesis, then Exodus. And we will stand for the reading of God's Word, Exodus, in the first seven verses. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Dan, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we have been called by you on this glorious day, the first day of the week as we remember the resurrection of Christ, we're called before you to worship you, Father. We rejoice that we are able to do so because of the resurrection of Christ, that he has completed our salvation so that we might be brought to you. And Father, as we now take up and work our way through the book of Exodus, we rejoice that that Exodus that was accomplished so long ago has pointed to the greater Exodus that was also accomplished from our perspective a long time ago as Christ came into the world to save sinners, to bring them home to you, to our God, to you, our Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you now bless the preaching of your word, give us understanding, not only in this sermon, but as we make our way through this book written so long ago, and yet a book written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit through your servant Moses. Lord, be glorified in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've launched into a number of books, and uh, many of you have been here each of those times, and uh, there's a certain necessity as we begin a book to talk about introductory material. Children, you might think of it this way. You're with your parents, and, and some people come to visit. Uh, they've never met you before. Maybe your dad knows them, and he starts introducing each of your children and telling how old you are, maybe a little about you, and then uh, the other household, same thing happens. You know, their introductions are made. Uh, happens in business. You, know, you men uh, travel off to meetings. You meet people you know, but then you meet others that you don't know, and introductions are made. It's very appropriate and, and even very necessary. We'll make some introductory points uh, a little bit later in, our, in the first point of this sermon, which will kind of focus on introduction. But there's so much to introduce in the book of Exodus. And so many of those things that I might spend a whole sermon on, we'll, we'll undertake, uh, we'll take up as we make our way through, particularly the first portions of Exodus, we'll visit some of those themes that are necessary. They're like an introduction made between people just meeting each other. It sets the stage to become friends, hopefully. And even as we look at the book of Exodus, hopefully that will develop a, a friendly familiarity, uh, even an affection 
and a fondness, not only for the book, but especially for the one who is displayed in the book, the God of Exodus, the God of glory, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. About ten days ago, I sent an email out to the congregation encouraging you individuals and families to read through the book of Genesis. A number of you were here when I preached through Genesis some time ago. Uh, the reason I did for it is because this encourage us is Genesis is a continuation of the book of Exodus. Um, the children of Israel, uh, the people of God of old, they viewed these five books of Moses, as we think of them, the Pentateuch, the five books, as really one book, the book of Moses, as you will. And the reason is simple is that this book is a continuation of the history that was in the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, the very first word in Exodus um, is and. Um, it's generally not translated, but it's there. And so you see the opening verse, and now these things. It's just like you're telling a story to your friend. You say, and this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. That's essentially what Moses is doing. We finished, and really we're just, we're just carrying on the same people and in the same place where we left them in the book of Genesis. The story that the author is telling is ultimately God's story. Perhaps, I suspect all of you have heard uh, the statement, and it's not cute, it's true. History is his story. It's the story of God. It is God unfolding his story, his plan, carrying out his will. God who determines and decrees all things. God who is in all things and above all things and working through all things. It's his story. The, the story of history is about him uh, dealing with people and nations. God is leading the human author, Moses, to write these particular things. But this is the very word of God breathed out by God into Moses, that human author who writes, the, writes these things. Moses is telling a story, God's story of redemption. In Genesis, you remember early on that there in the garden, our first father, Adam, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had forbidden. And God has said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Adam took and he did eat, and we all sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression because we were in his loins, and he represented us. We're going to see that same language here in a moment concerning the sons of Jacob. And so we saw the story begin of God promising a redeemer. There in Genesis 3, we see God as the first prophet. And he comes with the first message of the gospel, that there will be the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. It was good news. But it was thousands of years before that came to pass, and yet it was so. And we see even in Genesis, and on through the account of Genesis, dealing with the household even of Jacob, and all the sin of those brothers, and the things that took place in the second half of the book of Genesis, as we see the God is the God who saves is a plan. He had a plan before the foundation of the world, thus he could announce to Adam and Eve that there would be this seed of the woman. We've heard of it even in the book of Isaiah just a moment ago, how there would be a birth, a sudden birth, as a woman who were not even in labor, and there's echoes there in the book of Revelation where you see the woman pursued by the evil one who tries to swallow it up, and so it is from Genesis to Revelation there's this great conflict, as, as I introduced to you, and as we saw over and over in the book of Genesis, a conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the servant. serpent. And 
running through it all is that what some have referred to as the scarlet thread of redemption. God is at work. Ultimately, it's a story of God and his Redeemer, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see in the book of Exodus great themes that point to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's doing. One of the verses that uh, many of you know, one of the verses we refer to over and over again when we're in the book of John, for God so loved the world that he gave. And what did he give? Who did he give? He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's really the message in Exodus. Christ is the Lamb who brings us to God. Christ is the means of our exodus. Because remember, in the book of Genesis, what happened? Adam and Eve sinned, and they were driven out to the east. Driven out away to the east, as it were, uh, the presence of God. The Garden of Eden was in the west. And, and even as the tabernacle will see being built and set up, the gate will look to the east, a, a door opening to those who were driven away, that they could come back to God. This exodus, when the temple is later built by Solomon, again, the doors of the temple and the gates of the temple grounds, they open to the east in the very direction that God drove sinners away, because God, through these things, is pointing Christ, whom he brings the people out of the world, back to himself, back into fellowship with him. That's the Exodus. The scene of the Exodus runs through the scripture. We saw it in John's Gospel. This theme, Exodus, began in Genesis. You saw how in chapter 6 we're told that the the sons of man, the daughters of men went in and married the sons of God. And so that all of humanity became corrupt and evil as the godly line and the ungodly line mixed and blended so that what the result was is that the thoughts of the people were only continually, were only evil continually. And so that God cleansed the earth with a flood and destroyed the nations, except for those eight souls, because Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. God preserved them. He preserved the seed of the woman. And so it was through Joseph God preserved the seed of the woman, particularly through the line of Judah. Well, let me move on then into the introduction. We'll have three main points. An introduction to Exodus, an abbreviated introduction to be sure, but we'll begin there. Then we'll consider that God keeps his promises. Children, I was thinking of you when I named this point because again, was, we're looking at God's covenantal faithfulness. And you might say, what? What do you mean, Pastor? Well, that's what I was thinking. I'm going to just call this point, God keeps his promises. You children understand that, don't you? you? You're told to keep your promises. You like it when your parents keep their promises. Well, there is one who always keeps his promises, and that is God. So look at that. God keeps his promises. And then we're going to consider the, the theme that I, I think stands out for the book of Exodus. Saved for God's glory. We'll introduce that theme and we'll be keeping that theme kind of set there for us. Something of a, as a marker, a beacon, something that will guide us as we make our way along through the book of Exodus. That God is at work saving a people for his glory. Let's begin with an introduction. We consider the authorship. 
children, when you pick up a book, I'm thinking and looking at most of you children, you're probably too young and go, oh, the author's name is. Uh, you get older, maybe you consider the author, and you may get to the point where you say, oh, I've read a book by this author before. But most of it, you just, you just read the book, right? Or you look at the pictures. But children, you know what? Every book has an author. There's somebody who wrote that book. That's true about Exodus. The book of Exodus had an author, and that author's name was Moses. And I know many of you children have heard about Moses in your education classes. You've heard about Moses and the basket and the pitch and being placed into the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter. That's the Moses we're talking about. He is the human author whom God appointed to write this book that we have called Exodus. Moses had a very interesting beginning. I just mentioned, mentioned that. But Exodus is, 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 is not a typical, typical book. It's part of God's Word, the Bible. And that means that this book of Exodus, every word in it is God's breath. God breathed out his word into Moses. Or as Peter writes, he says, the, the men who are the authors of the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit moved holy men of old along to write their words. And yet when we read the various books, we, we see the, the author, that human author, is his personality, his vocabulary. We're going to see this is very true. The, the author of Exodus, he understands Egypt. He understands the, the, the lay of the land of Egypt. He understands the government of Egypt. This is a, an intelligent and educated man who wrote this book. And Moses was that man. But it's ultimately God speaking through Moses. We need to remember that God is speaking through Moses, led by the Holy Spirit. Moses wrote the original language for Exodus is Hebrew. We've been in John's Gospel, and the New Testament is written in Greek. And if you children want to come after the service is over, I brought my Hebrew Bible with me, and you can take a look at it. And I imagine your eyes will kind of get big because it looks very different than what you're used to seeing. But that's the language that Moses wrote in. He wrote in the Hebrew language. Moses' early life, I want to consider that briefly. Moses' early life uh, serves as a small picture, or you might say a, a kind of a paradigm or, a paradigm, or there's parallels in Moses' life to the life of Israel. There's those major events that took place in Moses' life that prefigure what's going to hap happen in the life of Israel. And early in Moses' life, we find him in Egypt, and then we find him in Midian. And so it was that so we find Israel in Egypt, and then we're going to find them in Midian, their name, a region known as Midian. Moses was born as a slave, and he was in danger of being murdered. The Pharaoh had commanded that all the male children be cast into the river Nile to be drowned. That was what Moses experienced. Well, that's paralleled certainly in the nation of Israel. They're all slaves. And all the male children of Israel this same edict, this command from Pharaoh the king was that all male children should be cast into the river Nile. Moses passes through the water in a basket and is delivered. And later we'll see Israel will pass through the waters and be delivered. Moses 
will escape to Midian, we'll find Israel escaping to Midian. Moses then encounters God in a burning bush at Mount Sinai. And then in parallel, we'll find Israel at Mount Sinai. Israel encountering God as the top of the mountain burns. There's God, his present upon it. We also see a parallel. Moses, Moses is unfaithful and doubting in his early years. But God is faithful and responds to miracles. And so it is with Israel. Israel will be unfaithful and doubting, not just in the book of Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, but on and on. And yet, through it all, God is faithful and he responds with miracles. Moses will rescue the daughters of Jethro from the hands of cruel shepherds at a well. And then water that flock. You see that in 2.17. The language that is used in that passage is almost identical, almost word for word for what we find in Exodus 18.10 where we hear God rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. So we see Moses there rescuing the daughters of Jethro in a picture and a foretelling of what God will do using Moses to deliver his people out of the hand of Pharaoh. So when did all this take place? Well, I'm mindful that most of you adults, you can follow these big dates, but children, I'm, I'm sure this is just so much confusion to you. But nonetheless, we say that the book of Exodus takes place in the mid-13th century before Christ. So 1,300 years before the times of Christ, before what we saw in the book of John. That is, the years that are the 1200s next to the 13th century. It took me a long while to wrap my head around this. The, you know, the 1300s are the 14th century, and the 1200s are the 13th century. But nonetheless, that it is what it is. So what we really, children, if you just think of it this way, this happened a little over 3,000 years ago. That really helps, doesn't it? 3,000 years ago. You, know, you, you children, you can't even imagine the idea of 30 years, right? 3,000 years ago, this took place. Well, more importantly, this is 430 years after Jacob and his family went down into Egypt from Canaan in the days of Joseph. And after the 400 years of slavery, exactly what God promised Abraham took place. In Genesis 15:13, God tells Abraham that his descendants would be in Egypt for 40 years, and then they'll bring him out. And in Exodus 12, 40 and 41, we read that after the Passover, when they're released, when they leave, it's recorded on that very day, exactly when God told Abraham it would take place. Well, let's wrap up this part and move on, but I first want to make some application. Children, all of you, children and adults alike, Yes, these events took a long, took place a long time ago. And I say, well, what's their relevance? What's their purpose? Well, God's word is profitable for correction, for rebuke, for training and instruction. It's all profitable. What does this information mean for us today? Well, first, if you consider this, it's God who is writing a story. It's not that just God saw this happen and then moved Moses to write it. God is the author of the story. God is the determining what happens. That's the way you can tell Abraham, 
this long your descendants will be there, and then I will bring them out. And then exactly as God told Abraham, it took place. God is the writer of the story. The Exodus took place even though there were many obstacles. There were those men who interfered, and yet it all came about just as God said. That's the same that's true for today. I look at the headlines. I get various emails and news things, as I'm sure you do. I don't really look at the television for that stuff. But yet we see the events of our day, and it's just like all so much noise and confusion. Uh, it'd be easy to become anxious and, and maybe even say, is anybody even in charge anymore? Who can make any sense of all this? How's it all going to turn out? We can be inclined to panic. God's people were slaves. Each day we just hunker down and do that works labors. A whip at the back, year after year. Fathers passing it on to children. With some little echo of being told that God will deliver us and wondering, where's God? Has God forsaken us? Has God forgotten us? What happened to this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Sometimes we can be inclined to feel that way. But my friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, our story, every one of us, individually, collectively, the story of this nation, the story of all the nations, at this hour and in these days, it's God's story. God has decreed it. God has determined it. God will carry it to pass. He governs all his creatures and all their actions. Be at peace in that knowledge. Rest in the certainty of God's faithfulness. We don't need to know what's going to happen next year, ten years from now, or even tomorrow. Jesus even says, take care of today. There's enough trouble in one day. Be faithful today. God's the Lord of today and tomorrow. Secondly, Exodus, the book of Exodus, and I referred to this earlier even as I was praying, it serves as a parallel or a shadow of what will happen, what would happen when Jesus came to earth. Indeed, what we've heard happen as we're in the book of John. I'm, I'm delighted that we are coming from John to Exodus. Uh, you could go the other way as well, but the two are tied together. John is looking at the book of Exodus as well as the other Old Testament scriptures, but particularly to the book of Exodus. And so what we saw in the book of John when we see the God-man come to earth, God the Son come to earth, take up our humanity, and then be the Passover lamb. To be crucified on the cross, to shed his blood for the remission of sins, so that God can bring his people near near in fellowship, near in community, near in worship, near as adopted children. Exodus is looking to that. It's looking forward to that. There's this prefiguring. There's a, 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 a shadow in Exodus that is cast by those events that will happen in the first century. We see them played out here. So we see God defeat Egypt. You hear today about superpowers. You know, the United States has been the superpower since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now China's rising. It wants to be a superpower. Egypt is a superpower. Who's concerned about Egypt today? 
No reason to be. No reason to be, right? God is over it all. God is mighty and powerful over all the nations, as we're reminded frequently by one of our elders from Isaiah 40. The nations, they're just a drop in the bucket, the vastness of the ocean. Uh, just, just a particle of dust on the scales of no account before the Almighty. The vastness of the universe, God amazes it out in the breadth of his hand. And the, the infinite number of stars from our reckoning, God has a name for every one of them. God is great. And in the book of Exodus, we see the greatness of God come through. Children, I'm, I'm aware of our day that there's a lot of you who love Star Wars. A lot of power displayed at Star Wars. You know, they use all that CGI stuff and put up these fantastic scenes. Or, or you got the whole Avengers uh, universe of these superpowers, superhumans. <laughs> so what? They're a fabrication. They're a, they're a joke. They are nothing. They're fiction. But God is real. He is not a superpower. He is not a superhero. He is God Almighty. We'll be talking more about that. The conference that I went to at Greenville Seminary was on God and His attributes. We just dipped our, our toe into the waters, as it were. And just the very first address, I sent you the link to that. It's like, put my hand over my mouth in silence, as Job says, at the immensity and the majesty and the glory of God. You have all your Star Wars and superheroes. They're nothing before God Almighty. The things that he accomplished that we'll see in this book of Exodus, they're glorious beyond measure. That we should exalt and magnify God and not man. That our hope should be in God and not in man. That we should trust in God, the one true and the living God, the God who is holy, holy, holy. And he loves us. And he's near to us. And he's tender. He's revealed himself to us as Father. Though he's mighty and we should come before him with trembling as the Psalms teach. Let his children of the Father coming through the Lord Jesus Christ so we can come and just say, Father, pick me up. My life's a mess. I'm grieved. I, I've made a mess of everything. Or, or I'm just hurting. That great God receives us. We will see the tenderness of God. We see it all. Let's foreshadowed in the book of Exodus. We see it all, the cross of Christ, the culmination of this one who came into the world to save sinners. Secondly, we want to consider God keeps his promises. As I said in the introduction, Moses really begins by tying this book to the book of Genesis. It's just absolutely tied to that book. The first five verses are, are a summary. The first five verses that we just read, they're a summary of the end of Genesis. Moses begins with, and. Most translations don't record it, I said, but and's there, and it's important. Moses has used it, and this is the way a Hebrew
storyteller would tell the story. The, the little part, the particle there, va, the va consecutive, because he would tell a story. And da-da-da-da, and da-da-da-da, and da-da-da-da. That's the way the Hebrew narrative goes. And Moses is just carrying on with the rest of the story as he moves in what we know as the book of Exodus. These two books are tied very much together. Moses here lists the sons of Israel who now live in Egypt. Notice what he says. Now these are the names of the children of Israel, or specifically the sons of Israel, who came to Egypt. Each man with his household came with Jacob. This is the same statement that introduces the various generations throughout the book of Genesis. Remember, some of you can remember back when the book of Genesis. Now these are the generations. That was that marker when we move from one section of Genesis to another section of Genesis to another. Now, these are the generations of Abraham. Now, these are the generations of Esau. Now, these are the generations, and here it is again. These are the generations of the children of Israel. Moses quotes Genesis 46, verse 8 here. The first, he does the 11 who came down with their families during the days of the famine. During the days when Joseph is, he's running Egypt, isn't he? He went from a slave in chains because his brothers hated him. They determined to murder him. But then the Israelite traders came along, so they sold him as a slave, and he went in iron fetters. Just told us in the New Old Testament. That's told in the New Testament. He went down in iron fetters into Egypt. Then he was falsely accused. Then he's in prison. Then he interprets the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. And then... The cupbearer goes, oh, yeah, I'm a really bad guy. I forgot about the guy. Yeah, Pharaoh, there's a guy down in the prison who can tell you what your dream means. And he does. And, of course, Joseph gives God the glory. He says, no man can tell dreams, but God can. And the Spirit of God is in Joseph and explains it. And so then Pharaoh knew what to do, and he appointed Joseph to be over all the land. So during the seven years of incredible plenty, food was set aside for the seven years of devastating famine. And so the children of Israel were preserved because Joseph went down before them through the sinfulness of his brothers. Joseph was in Egypt, but the hand of God was upon him. So at the end of it, Joseph could say, yes, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And through this is brought away, brought about salvation for many souls, because Joseph's name means Savior like Jesus. Joseph is a beautiful beacon and a, a, a signpost post pointing to Christ. Joseph is used to literally save the line of Judah. The sign of the seed of the woman was preserved in that day so that the children of Israel would be preserved. God, being faithful to his promises, he preserved his covenant people. And then Moses lists them. You see in verses 2 through 4. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Eskar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Asher, Gad, and Asher. Now it's interesting the order that Moses uses here. This is not the birth order. Moses lists the order according to their birth mother. And who is given the place of priority? Who was it that Jacob loved most? Rachel. But God leads Moses to begin with Leah's children. Then Rachel's. Moses lists 
Rachel afterwards. We see the pairs of then and finally the sons who were born to the handmaids. So we have Leah's sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Ishakar, and Zebulun. And then Benjamin, the one son of Rachel who went down to Egypt because the other son was already in Egypt. And then Again, this shift of the priorities, so you have Leah, and then Rachel, and then the handmaids, it's Rachel's handmaid, and then Leah's handmaid. Interesting. I can't tell you why that is, but that is the way it is. But the priority is placed on Leah. I think, though, Jacob delighted in Rachel. God's special attention was upon Leah. And so it is, we see Leah, and then Rachel, and then Bilhah, and then Zilpah. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, are listed Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's handmaid, Zilpah, are listed Gad and Asher. And then, of course, Moses writing, he's thinking the children of Israel, the 12 tribes to be counting, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Wait a minute, there's 12 tribes or another one in. The way it's written in our English Bibles, it's a parenthetical. For Joseph was in Egypt already. Uh, the order in the Hebrew is the emphasis is on the idea of already. Jo already Joseph's in Egypt, which is the echoes of the way Genesis closed. God's dealing, God's faithfulness, God's covenant promises, so that these can go down and provision is made for them. And that is the promise that Joseph made to his father, come down and I will care for you and your children and your, and your grandbabies. I will make provision for all of you. And they're placed in the very best of the land. Let me look at verse 5. All 12 tribes counted for the sons, their wives, so notice what Moses says. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Now that might be a little confusing to you. In the original language, the, the nature of it is those who came from his loins. So there's 70 who descended from Jacob. Sons, grandsons, granddaughters, and so forth. These are actual descendants. And then there would have been sons, uh, daughters-in-law those who married into the family. But of those who were descended directly from Jacob, 70. Think about that. How many? God promised Abraham a great host. And Abraham had one son of promise. And then there was the, the son of Hagar who was driven out. That's another covenant, as the writer makes clear, as Paul makes clear. In Galatians. They had one son. How many children did, did uh, Isaac have? Two. What did God say? Jacob have I loved, and Esau I've hated. The focus is on Jacob. So there's Jacob in this godly line moving toward the sea of the woman. And now Jacob, we go from one to one to 70. That's pretty impressive. Until we get to the next verse. But hold on to that thought. So there's these direct descendants. So this whole assembly, if there's 70 directly genetically descended from Jacob, and then you add all their wives and their children and their grandchildren, and then you add in all the servants, because these men were wealthy. They had servants and they had slaves. There's a household of hundreds that went down into Egypt. Israel's growing. And this is God's doing. God said to Abraham, Exalted Father Abram, I will make you Abraham, father of many nations.
said serves as a marker. Look at what it says. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. You understand what that's saying? All of those who went down into Egypt, they all died. Do you hear echoes of Genesis 5? So-and-so, we got so-and-so, and he died. 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 And what is that an echo of? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There is this curse for sin, and yet in the midst of it, you see God being covenantally faithful, faithful to Abraham, who is called out to make of him a great nation. And, you know, this generation has died. It's not the end of Abraham's line. We read verse 6 and we're reminded of the exile. They were driven out to the east, away from the fellowship and the presence of God. They're driven away, and they're still dying. Because to be with God in the presence of God is life. We're told that in Jesus' high prayer. This is eternal life, to know the Father. But they cannot know the Father while they reside in sin in order for them to be brought near to God and have life. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that those who believe the promise of God had life in that one who would come. But this death is still in the world, even as it is in our day. God is at work. The men are still dying. Mankind is still exiled. Then verse 7. This is where we're heading to. This is the crescendo. This is the glorious clash of the symbols. Children, I want you to pay attention to this. This is amazing. But the children of Israel, notice the contrast, and Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but, choose your something good comes after but, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. God 
has done this. This is God's promise. Listen to the promise. God comes to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, and he says, I will bless you and make you a great and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Genesis 15:5, and he brought him outside, that is Abraham. God brought him outside, and he says, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, that is to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And then in chapter 17 and verse 6, God says to Abraham again, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. There's one of those words we see here. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Abraham did not see that come to pass. But it has come to pass. In the fullness of time, at the right time, God has brought it to pass. God's decrees always happen on schedule. God's never late. His decrees come to pass on schedule. Children, I want you to listen to this. Understand this. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, go away remembering now and throughout your life. God is Faithful. But God promises. God delivers. He does. He's not a man that he should lie. And what God promises, he is able to do. You can imagine Abraham looking at the stars and going, is that even possible? Well, Abraham was discovering that what God promised was not only possible, it was going to happen. God is faithful. God can promise great things because God is able to do great things. What's the catechism say, children? He is able to do all his holy will. Notice how this language that is used by Moses here ties into Genesis 1.26. This is in the creation account. Now God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and over the air of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over the, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. What does Moses say here? Not only has God been faithful, the children of Jacob have been faithful. They've been fruitful. They've been multiplying with God's blessing. So we see here God blessing their obedience, even as God moved to them to be obedient. Just two points of application before we move on. Think about this in prayer. Has God made great promises in Scripture to you, child of God? Indeed, He has. If they were not promises from God, they would be audacious. Right? But God has promised great things. And when we pray, we take God's Word and look at His words. And God, you promised this. And you pray God's promises back to Him. And ask him to fulfill him in his timing. He promise, we pray his promises and wait. Remember, God works on his schedule and not yours. Secondly, when it comes to the matter of salvation, God promised that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, we may not be Ted Bundy's or Adolf Hitler's. 
sinners. We don't deserve the salvation of our God. We're great sinners. And yet God says, whosoever. God's able to give salvation. He's able to save to the othermost. No matter how deep a hole you dug in your sin, God is able to rescue and deliver you. But thirdly, we close with the theme of the Exodus, saved for God's glory. When Israel went into Egypt, they did not go alone. God had gone before them, as we noted. He had set Joseph ahead of them, but God had gone to prepare a place for them, even with the, the provision of the seven years of abundance and the seven years of famine. Remember, Joseph's name means Savior, like Jesus. And God has saved his people through Joseph. It was God, ultimately, who saved. Joseph was his instrument. God was great in that he was in all the details, even in that. As I mentioned earlier, he used the hatred of Joseph's brothers that motivated to move them along to sell him to be a slave. And that God was in it that Joseph would be in Pharaoh's prison when Pharaoh had those dreams that kept him most alarmed. Genesis is all about God's glory. Genesis is all about God's glory. God was saving the seed of the woman who would bring the salvation of the Lord. God saves for his glory. John, in his gospel, he tells his purpose for writing, John 20, 31, these things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose for writing. But the theme of John's gospel is the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to Exodus records, we see God dealing with men and nations as he saves his people for his own glory. God saves for his glory. What's man's chief end? To glorify God. And in so doing, we enjoy him forever. What Israel had going for them in Egypt, they had much. They would look down and say, where's God? As I mentioned earlier. But what they had going for them, God was with them. And God would save them. God was the one who brought about their salvation. And even as they, they wondered, Moses will see, he comes and like, oh, come on. They're going to get to the point where Moses is going through what God said he would do, and the, and the yoke is even heavier about them. And then the people of Israel are like, you know, just, just leave it alone, Moses. It's not worth it. And even in the wilderness, we'll see, they said, oh, that we were still by our flesh spots in Egypt. We had it better than they were slaves. And yet, through it all, God is with his people. And it is God who saves his people. And he does so for his own glory. The book of Exodus is his story for his glory. Let me just close with a few questions. Are you living your life for God's glory? Is that your goal? Is that your ambition? Is that what drives and motivates you to live your life for God's glory? If not, why not? Perhaps you've been overtaken with a sin. Or perhaps... You've never surrendered to God. You ever had that cry? It's like, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're the God who saves. Save me for your own glory. He saves to the other most. Perhaps you've been wayward. God, have mercy. And grant me repentance and faith to once again walk with you in the newness of the life 
that you've secured for me. If your life is good for God's glory, then praise Him, for it is not according to the will of man, but of God, so that He would have all the glory. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you are the God of glory, that you are worthy, that all glory should be ascribed unto you, for indeed all glory is thine and thine alone. And you do not share your glory with the sons of men. O Lord our God, as your children redeemed by your glorious salvation, help us to live our lives for your glory. Even as we have gathered to worship and magnify the name of our God, be glorified before us again and again we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.